on today's episode of Gathering the Kings. We had very limited money, but we didn't care about losing it all. Like we could care less. Right. We just plowed it all into the company without yeah. even thinking about it. It's, right. it's kind of you totally disregard the fact that you can fail and lose it all. It's like, doesn't matter. I'm not going to fail. I just devote 100% of my energy into this and 100% of my resources into this. Yeah. I believe it that much. You are listening to Gathering the Kings with Chaz Wolf, featuring fellow seven, eight, and even nine figure business owners who have real battle scars from business and life, but have prevailed as the king that they are designed to be. We welcome high performing entrepreneurs to the stage in order to reveal the real of the real on what it takes to build a successful business today. We dissect the good and bad decisions they've made along the way that give a true and accurate picture of the journey of success and how you too can get there. Through this dialogue, you will learn the value of growing your network and surrounding yourself with power players and kings like today's guest. Grab your pen and notebook because we're about to dive in. All right, everybody. This is Chaz Wolf gathering the Kings podcast. I've got Rick Costick here on the King stage. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks, Chaz. Great to be on. I appreciate you being here. This is going to be a fun one because we have not had anybody in your industry here on the show. Retail, yes, a little bit, but man, you guys are crushing it in your industry. I am so excited for this conversation. Rick, tell us what kind of business that you have, brother. Yeah, we have a a beauty business. So that means skincare, makeup, hair care, bath and body. We were recently ranked by Newsweek as the 30th largest website in beauty as a single brand. And if you look at the ones above us, none of them are independent. We're the, so we're the top independent brands in terms of our website in the industry as ranked by Newsweek recent issue. Yeah. Congratulations. Um, I was just on the site as I was telling you before we hit the record button here and some of your, some of your products are, are even fruit-based and all kinds of fun stuff that is super unique and uh, with me being from an edible arrangements background and and everything fruit in that world, you know, I felt like we were a little bit kindred spirits there for a little bit with uh, with our fruit offerings, you know, bring it, bring a strawberry to the world in lots of different ways, you know. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, Rick, I, I want to know before we get into your story and kind of how you built this business and and your background is just so unique to me, which I love how it's going to all come together for the listener here. But I want to know why first. What what are you doing this for? What's the bigger picture? Why do you push so hard? You've obviously had some immense success, but you're still at it. Why? Yeah, well, early on, the why was, and I fell into the industry because I was actually a computer coder and I did websites back in the day and did a website for a salon and that's how I got into it. But I met my current business partners because we we looked at the industry and this was this was back in 2000 and three 2004 and we saw all these ingredients used in products that just you don't you don't know how to pronounce (sighs) and then when you dig into it and you see the studies on it you actually realize that these ingredients are causing issues and you know back then it was animal studies which we don't condone but they had them and it was causing issues in animals and then you wonder why all these you know cancer is becoming this major issue with uh, most people and the problem is, is that people didn't care what was in their product and they were just using and trusting the big companies that were producing it. Yeah. And we thought, you know, we want to produce something that's entirely healthy and good for people going to improve their lives. 
And so the fact that we can do this and again and again, even though the industry's cleaned up a lot and we yeah. led the cleanup of the industry, there's still yeah. more room to go. There's a lot of like misleading information out there that we have to educate on. Yeah. Yeah. That perspective of <clears throat> blindly trusting, it's not necessarily blind trust. It's just that we had trust and you can look at that from across the way. You can look at, you know, the food in the aisles of the grocery store. You can look at the makeup. You can look at the hair products. You can look at nutrition products, the, the stuff that I'm supposed to take after I work out that's supposed to be good for me. Like it's, it's all this, you know, this, this level of trust that we have because it was branded and because we bought it at a store and we felt really good about it. And so give me like, okay, so you've got this altruistic, I want to help people. I want to save, save people from cancer. Was it always like that? Or did you, did you fall into that? Was it, is it a combination of that plus something for you, for your family? What, what, what's behind all of that? That, that was from the beginning of this company. I would say, in, you know, every company, you need a mission. You can't, you can't really drive yourself forward without a mission. You need something to align yourself behind. And later that becomes even more important because right. your staff needs something to be aligned behind. And then your customers to align behind it. And even your partners, exactly. I mean, like your vendors and things like that, as you bring them into your ecosystem and forge stronger partnerships, That's right. they relate to your mission too, and they support you. And so having the mission is critically important. So look, for, for example, my previous company, I did a hair company when I was doing the websites and I met a salon owner and we started a company together. So the hair company, our mission was really just to provide hair care for teenagers because we saw that teenagers didn't have any hair care options and they had money. And that was, I would say that mission was not as strong as the current mission. Got it. And, you know, we still got that company. We still got that brand into Sephora back then and we got it into Nordstrom's. Wow. But the current the current mission, I would say, is a, a little more noble in the fact that we're yeah. really making a difference to the world, which is what I personally want to do with my life in that we're improving everyone that we're making products for, we're improving their lives. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a big deal, not just to add to their lives, but to literally improve, right? Obviously, the makeup or hair care, you get to... You get to make them look great and and smell good, that type of a thing. But you actually get to add to the benefit of their body, which is really what you're talking about. Right. Exactly. That's incredible. I think that there's probably a lot of people that would love to have that type of mission statement, but maybe they're in a business where it doesn't allow them to connect to a you know a big problem like saving the world from cancer or you know something like that. But what would you say to the entrepreneur who's listening right now who you know, maybe they build decks or maybe they do marketing for, for clients. How, well, like, how do they connect that to something so big, like what you've done? You think, you think about your impact. So whether you're building decks, what's the impact? Who are you building decks for? What's the outcome of these decks that you're building going to do? Is it going to cause your clients to achieve these big deals? That's going to end up making them more successful. Like uh, if go to the impact first and then build that into your mission and don't make your mission so defined you don't want it to define because as you grow and you're going to build a successful company you need this mission a little bit broad so that the strategies you undertake can fall into your mission and your mission is sort of your guiding light too because it tells you strategy is not just what you're going to do but it's also what you are not going to do yeah so good. for example like 
you know, who makes the lighters, they make razor blades. They, they knew yeah. they were really big on molding plastic and metal together. So they're going to play in that field. They're not going to go out and start making furniture, for example. Right. right. So, or like Ikea is not going to go out and start making high-end furniture. They know they play really well in the, the low-end furniture. It aligns to their mission. So like us, with our mission to improve the lives, we're not going to do anything in conventional cosmetics. We are never going to make a product that is going to have these chemical ingredients in it just because we want to compete with the big guys on the mass market. That's, that's not aligned with our mission. We're not going to do it. So strategy is also knowing what not to do. So when you, when you form your mission, your mission defines your strategy. So the mission is critically important and you can have a mission no matter what you're doing, whether it's building decks, just look at the end result that you're doing and it helps. It, it becomes this guiding light for you and your company and, and all your stakeholders. Yeah, you're hundred percent right. <clears throat> have a um, client of mine who builds huge water features, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollar water features and a recent conversation a couple months back around, you know, coming recession and discretionary income and how maybe a $200,000 water feature <clears throat> isn't necessarily high on the priority list. And the conversation turned to the impact, which is, that client isn't necessarily thinking $200,000 for a water feature. They're thinking peace, or they're thinking I have something where I need to be able to host people or whatever that other thing, that other impact is, is why they still get the water feature or the deck or, you know, the, the healthy, uh, the products for their face, skin, and hair. Right. And they're improving lives. They're doing water features, which is improving the happiness yeah. of the world. Yep. So true. Okay. Let's go, let's go into your story a little bit. You kind of gave us a little bit, you're a computer programmer, you're building websites, but give us a little bit more of that story. How did you, how did you get into making this type of not only product, but just like a 30th ranked big business? Yeah. So starting out in my, my backstory a little bit was making the, the shampoo and conditioner. And I met my current business partners. I have two business partners. So Susie is one and her brother, James is the other one. And Susie was also doing her own brand out of her dorm room. We were attending Berkeley and we decided to, that we're going to make these clean cosmetics and, and change lives, right. And improve yeah. everyone's lives. And then we went out and, and we tried to train the contract labs because that's what you did in beauty is you work with a contract lab and, and there's various contract labs. They tend to be family run across the, the U S for the most part. And they didn't want to do it. They didn't want to make cosmetics our ways. They said, okay, we'll do it, but you're going to have to pay extra for it and have huge minimums, MOQ, minimum right. order quantities to do it. And it was just this barrier we couldn't overcome. Right. Yeah. And, and so it dawned on me, like, we can just make the cosmetics at home. We know what we're doing. We know how to combine the ingredients. We've done all the research, all the study. We weren't formally trained as chemists, although chemistry is something I align to. My parents are chemistry majors. I did well in chemistry and, and understood it very well, but it's not like we were formally trained in you know right. how to make cosmetics. And my business partner, Susie, was the, the same, but we did know what we were doing and we knew how to make skincare. And so we made skincare in our home. We lived together in Napa, California, and we just made 21 skincare products. And then we started selling them to retail doors back yeah. then in 2004. And we got one big customer, which gave us our break initially. Yeah. 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 Well, so, I mean, you, you just gave us like <laughs> a very fast forwarded version of, of a lot of success. And so I appreciate this, the, 
the overcoming, right, of <clears throat> having this huge bear entry. I think most people would just, you know, give up, quit. It's too big. I can't handle it. Or it's just not meant to be whatever their thoughts are. But you didn't. What were you and Susie thinking in that moment where you were just like, no, let, let's just do it ourselves. Obviously, it was just a, another thought for you. But was there any gumption there of like, no, we, we have to do this. Like, we can't let them let can't let them beat us. You know, anything like that. So so being an entrepreneur is doing something with total disregard to your resources. That's, That's right. kind of what entrepreneurship is. You, you right. care less about what you have or if you have enough to do it. You just do it. And so we knew, okay, I don't have enough money. I can pay these labs to do these products. That's not going to work, but I'm still going to do it. So I'm yep. going to figure out a way. So we go to our local co-op where they sell bulk organic products. They're selling, it was Rainbow Co-op in San Francisco, and they sell all these bulk ingredients. And we started buying all the bulk ingredients, which is great for skincare because skincare is made out of, you know, we made our skincare out of food products and they were selling all the raw organic food products. And we go and we combine it back and, and we buy some oils. We go up to Davis, California, Northern California, and I'd buy the oils out from a local farmer and we blend it together and make this incredible, incredible skincare. So we did it total disregard to, we yeah. didn't have money, but we made it work anyways. Yeah, no, you're hundred percent right. I love the way that you, that you said it's such a total disregard to your resources. And when you disregard what you have or the box that you're supposed to be in, then your mind now has freedom to be able to solve the problem or go to another place of creativity to be able to figure those things out. <clears throat> Is, was that, was that, you know, just kind of inside you guys, or was that like a moment in time where you had like a, you drew upon a class that you learned this in? What, what how did you know that to do this? Yeah, I, I don't think it was a class. I think it was inside. And, yeah. and the other thing I think about thinking back to that time is, you know, we had very limited money, but we didn't care about losing it all. Like we could care less. Right. We just plowed it all into the company without yeah. even thinking about it. It's, right. it's kind of, you totally disregard the fact that you can fail and lose it all. It's like, doesn't matter. I'm not going to fail. I just devote 100% of my energy into this and 100% of my resources into this. Yeah. I believe it that much. Yeah. There's a depth there of belief or conviction maybe or blindness right <laughs> i it really i think that might be it <laughs> you're blind Especially to the it. beginning right like you just gotta i mean what what is there to lose what would you say because obviously you can't hold on to the just the negligent willy-nilly throw it all in go for it all the time forever does the balance balance out at some point is that a revenue marker is that a conversation that you had how do you how do you maybe even it out eventually where you're not, you know, all in all the time or, or are you? <clears throat> I, I think you are at different levels. I think you do go through it. I, it's a little bit of a roller coaster. So yes, you're in and then your business starts making money for you and then you feel more comfortable and you feel more balanced and, and you're able to take out from your business. But if, if, then if you take out too much from your business, it's not going to grow. And then your business needs even more, especially if it's fast growing, it just continuously needs more and more resources and you just continually take a, the next level of risk every time you hit another area of growth. Yeah. Yeah. What would you say to the entrepreneur who's listening right now, who, you know, is nervous about that? Like the, this lifestyle of risks, that's really what you've described. I know it to be true also, but I've, I have found for me personally that 
that's where the high now comes for me is that even though things are like settled and I already know that I'm, you know, I've been successful, I'm going to continue to be successful. Like once you know, and you know how to do it, like it kind of like you just are there, but I still, I just get the high from like going all in on myself, on my teams, on my businesses. But what do you say to the guy who's listening right now or the gal who's like, I don't know about that type of a lifestyle. That sounds kind of crazy. If you think about it and think about the most successful entrepreneurs out there, they've taken a lot of risk. It's about how you manage that risk. It's not about reducing the risk because the the risk will not reduce. It's about learning the techniques to manage it. So for example, I do a lot of mindfulness. I find that mindfulness allows me to handle a lot of stress and not really affect me because I can't control the things around me so much, but I can control my response to it and my the way I internalize it and my mindset to it. And so I focus on growing myself so that I can remain calm when everything around me is turbulent. And that's, that is where you should be as an, if, if you're cut out to be an entrepreneur and you want to be an entrepreneur, that's where you need to be is about changing yourself. So in a sea of turbulence, you can still be the rock and be the calm. Yeah. That's so good. What practically have you done to be able to get there, to be the rock, the calm? I would say it's a lot of personal growth and continuous education. You have to continue to sharpen the saw, as Stephen Covey has said, read. Like everyone I know that's that's entrepreneur, I myself included, we read like crazy and we take continuing education. I just did a program at Harvard Business School, an alumni program to become alumni from there, owner president management program, which was really, really helpful. You join networks. I joined the Young Presidents Organization, YPO yeah. Yeah. Network, which is those connections and the continued learning helps you and you gain another skill as you go. Yeah. You keep gaining your skills and, and elevating up. Yeah. Yeah. It's never ending game when you really think about it. It's just like you said, just, you just go to the next level up and up and up. And sometimes it's another person or a class or a resource or an experience, you know, that takes you to the next level. Sometimes that's the best way, especially for us entrepreneurs to, to learn, (laughs) we can read the book, but then to go actually put it into practice, maybe, maybe get a little dirty with it um, for us to actually figure out how to, how to go to the next level. Would you agree with that? I would entirely agree with that. And especially it's, it's the experience of your failures that you learn more from. You learn more from your failures than your successes because successes, you you just, if you were successful 100% of the time, you wouldn't really grow because you wouldn't really feel the need to grow. But when you hit these road, these failures and these stumbling blocks along the way, it forces you to want to do better and you grow from that. Yeah, I was listening to something from Steve Harvey this morning when I was working out and he was talking about basically this, these examples, these moments in time where we have to kind of push through. He calls it dirt, right? Like nothing that's ever grown into something beautiful didn't pop through the dirt, you know, and, and that's right. you got to have dirt for nutrients and you got to have the dirt for the learning and the experience. All the things that you just said is exactly what Steve was saying this morning as well. So I think it fits right in. I'm going to use this to parlay right into your experience as far as good and bad decisions. I want to know of a good choice that you've made in this business. Super practical. You do it over and over again. What can we learn from you? The good, the good choice, I can tell you bad choices all, all day long, but the good choice I did was I would say 
the number one thing you have to be in business to succeed. And, and I do a little bit of uh, angel investing and mentoring to other entrepreneurs. And so I've seen this in other entrepreneurs where it hasn't worked is the tenacity and the persistence. You have to not give up. That's like a kind of a trait that is a must have as an entrepreneur is never give up your persistence and your tenacity will lead to success because you're going to have times when you feel like you've made mistakes and you've lost it all, but you continue and there's actually a way to solve everything. Yeah. Well, what is that moment or what was one of those moments for you where you thought you had lost it all and you pressed on anyway? I can give a recent one <laughs> with, with COVID, yeah. for example. You know, we had retail doors. We had 16 of them. And we also had a fair amount of B2B business. So selling to other brick and mortar retailers and right. distributors around the world. And when COVID hit, it's like there's no more traffic to your retail doors. There's no more traffic to the retail doors of the businesses you're selling to. You can't ship so easily around the world to your distributors. And so it's like all of a sudden we went from where we've been profitable for decades or, you know, almost, well, we haven't been around for decades, but for over a decade, almost, (laughs) (laughs) almost, (laughs) almost, almost almost to going negative and, and we're self-funded. We never went out and got funding. And so it's like, there's only so much money that can get around. And so that was really, really tough. I would say that was the toughest time in my career to get through. And, you know, we're still coming out the other end of it. And the most important thing, the most important trait that helped us get through that is just the tenacity, just staying in there and knowing that we are going to find our way out of this. We're going to find the right people that are going to help us. We're going to find the right strategies that are going to take us through this. Yeah. Yeah. You said earlier something that aligns with what I think about persistence is you had already made a decision to win <clears throat> and and you said it a little differently a few minutes ago, but basically if you've already known ahead of time before COVID before insert, whatever struggle, if you, if you already made the decision that I'm going to figure it out, regardless of whatever resources I have to your point, then that stick to along with the creativeness that your brain gets forced into in that moment, because you literally shoved it into a, non-box you got to figure this out it forces you to figure it out and so and you did you're still alive here you are the company didn't die you didn't die like here we are you know and and we're actually stronger from it because we we changed around our strategies from that so we realized what we weren't good at and what we were good at and we knew we've been doing fulfillment for a company ever since the beginning you know with our own warehouse and shipping out packages and things like that and we're really bad at it we're really bad. Like we would take weeks to fulfill orders. Our customers would be upset. We would, our warehouse was not efficient and we would be very, you know, probably take two to three times as long to ship out a package in terms of the cost of labor as a, a professional. And we just, I never put time into it. I put my time into the marketing side. I put my time into right. the product side. I didn't put my time into the operations and I never could find someone that great to oversee the operations that was really good at it. And so we made the strategic decision. Let's partner. Let's, 
let's offload this and partner with a 3PL. Get that off and the 3PL can handle the entire operation. So we, yeah. we made the strategy change to get out of what we're not good at. And then we also made the strategy change that, look, we, we need to be back into manufacturing because through our story, we didn't do contract labs. We made stuff ourselves. Right. But over the years, we went out of manufacturing. And that was a big mistake in terms of mistakes. It was probably one of our biggest mistakes as a company. But because of this whole COVID thing, it accelerated us bringing back the manufacturing into under our roof. And that's been a a good thing. So, and we've cut expenses like crazy because we needed to, to manage our cash and, and manage our finances. And so we're now a much leaner, stronger, robust company. Yeah. More focused yeah. as well. Yeah. I love, I love all of those results that you were able to get out of that. I want to just, you know, obviously point out to the listener that those were good decisions that you made through those moments of like, Ooh, I don't know if we're going to survive. And, and it's those moments that then forced you to think differently that then led to those good decisions. I want to, I want to flip the coin here to the bad decision. Do you, are you going to go with the manufacturing and getting away from it or was there something else that came to your mind as far as just a terrible did not work out at all <laughs> so so what was interesting with the bad decision of manufacturing so we we did the manufacturing and we as we grew and moved warehouse to warehouse we'd always take the manufacturing with us and then we realized that you know what all these we always talk to the pe guys the private equity and to the venture capital and a lot of them told us that we should get out of manufacturing and it made us think, are we, are we doing the right thing by being in manufacturing? Right. And it was a, a little bit of a headache to manufacturing and that um, it was tough to scale. And we also had Susie's brother, James, my partner. He also was sometimes injuring himself in manufacturing, which is added to <laughs> the reasons to get out of manufacturing. Like he drops things on his toes or he spilled hot water on himself uh, things of that he climbed up the pallet racks and which he should never do he tell our <laughs> staff he can't do but he did it and he fell yeah. so it's like all, all this stuff was happening due to manufacturing so we made the decision let's stop manufacturing and let's use contract let's follow the advice of these private equity yeah. folks telling us to get out of it they know what they're talking about is what we thought and so yeah. we did that and what ended up happening is these contract labs they're not as good on the innovation. So we lost our innovation edge. We actually trained them how to do a lot of the innovation in the, the clean space, which then you notice there's this, I don't, in, in my industry, there's this rise of clean beauty yep. brands. Yep. Uh, you, know, you have hundreds of them rising up. They're all using the contract labs that we moved to that we trained on how to, how how to preserve, it. how to emulsify, all, all the challenging things around yeah. clean beauty that we trained on they were doing. And so that was the big mistake is we lost our innovation edge. And then they deprioritized us because we're not, you know, we've, we've done well and grown to a certain size, but we're not the biggest brand out there. There's bigger brands. And so we were deprioritized in their factory schedules. And mm-hmm. especially through COVID, they took forever to supply us or, you know, we were talking like we would issue a PO to them and it wouldn't ship for a year which just destroys, destroys your, your business because your customers, especially in beauty, they're fickle. If they can't get the product they want, they're going to a competitor. Oh yeah. And so that really hurt our business. So the, the worst decision we made as a company was getting out of 
manufacturing, which is now we have our renewed energy, renewed effort, building it back. And we will become the biggest clean beauty manufacturer in the world. That's what I aim for us to do. And again, it's about that mission, improving the lives of people. So not only are we manufacturing for ourselves, but we're also manufacturing for other brands as well. So not just 100% pure. And we're also incubating new brands along with that. So Susie, she thinks of bold ideas. We have these new concepts that we're bringing to the market around, uh, I'll give you just a teaser, uh, flower pigments we've been playing with to put flower, because we put fruit pigments into makeup. That's under 100% pure. Now we've been playing with flower pigments, not just for the makeup, but also there's a lot of beneficial exotic ingredients of flowers that are good for the skin. And we're putting that into skincare. So we're able to bring these new brands to market and plug them into our platform of manufacturing. And we've also done really well in China as well. It's it's quite incredible is that the China business is up 200% year over year for us. Wow. And and I, I formed a subsidiary in China to manage that. So I feel like instead of just being a single brand, you always, and this is kind of for every entrepreneur out there, you want to see about how you can eventually structure your business into a platform that you can grow. If you really want to truly grow into a, a big business, you want to see how you can build a platform that you can plug other businesses down the line into. And I feel like that's what right. we're doing with the We have the manufacturing and then we have the distribution, whether it's through China or through our B2B network. And we also have the digital marketing expertise. So we can pretty much plug brands into this platform and make them from this level into much more successful. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Especially since you've been able to take some of those moments where in essence, what you described with the manufacturing, it was you had given away so much control that it just enabled you to not be... And nimble. And so I think that there are some reasons that an entrepreneur should let go of control, right? Um, when, yes. when we hire somebody, we we let go of control. But you made a great point of there's certain angles or certain maybe sections of the business that maybe you always need to have control over so that innovation doesn't die, especially if that's a core value, especially if that's like part of your industry where you're like leading the industry, you probably shouldn't give that away. What were you going to say? There's, a, there's another one related, right? Related to what you're saying is that one of the things I did, so you always think to hire people, right? As you grow, right. hire, yeah. hire people to do things and delegate. Yeah. Uh, delegate and, ele- and elevate is the common phrase. But what I did do is I hired people. So at, when you get to a certain size as a business, sometimes your greatest strength, well, not sometimes, I would say nearly every time, your greatest strength becomes your greatest weakness. Sure. And what I mean by that is what I ended up doing is I hired for my strength and I hired people into my marketing mm. and I gave up control. Of, and marketing is, is my strength personally. That's what I am really passionate about. That's what I'm good at on, especially on the digital side of things. Yeah. And I, I brought in a, a team of really a players and I had too many a players that just butt heads, but they cut me out because they felt like they know what they're doing. We don't need Rick. What do we need him for? (laughs) Yeah. And yeah. What do we need him for? He's, he's, you know, he's, he's washed up. He's, he's had his days. He doesn't know what's going on in the beauty industry. And he's a guy, you know, beauty industry is predominantly for women. So he, you know, they thought they knew better and didn't solicit help or didn't want help. And I, and to effect, I hired them to do that. 
And right. that was the purpose. Like they were supposed to do that. That's what they were put in place to. But the thing is, when you're really strong at something, you're probably, and you've been successful at it, you're probably better than most of the people that you can hire to put into that place. Right. So it's it's better to hire for your weaknesses first. Eventually you will have to hire for your strength and you're going to have to figure that out. Yep. But it would have been better if I focused on say operations and right. I brought in people to do operations because that's not where I'm, I am not strong on operations and, and I haven't had the right people in the operations to make that a strength of ours. Cause you can actually build a, a competitive company by having really strong operations Oh, yeah. But I didn't do that. And I hired for my strength. So your greatest strength could become your weakness. And I did it, unfortunately, earlier than was necessary by focusing on the who, not the, the who, not the how, how bringing in the people for marketing. I should have brought right. in the people for the, the ops. Pieces. Yeah. Yeah. So good. What, what today, Rick, do you follow, if anything, a process, maybe a four-step plan or whatever, but around making decisions, something comes to your desk today. You've obviously kind of made it through the ups and the downs. You've been successful. How do you operate in the decision-making today? So this is really, really important. A great question. Decision-making, you need to be able to make decisions with 70% of the, the information. Good. You will not, Why you 70%? Will not get, because otherwise it'll take too long. If you yeah. try to get all the information or take, you know, try to get to 99%. So you make the right decision. You're not going to move fast. I think about it like this, like, you think about real estate and brokers or people buying and selling companies, people buying and selling real estate. How do they make money? It's the number of deals. It's not the amount of money on each deal. So the same thing with decision-making. If you are right 60% of the time, you're going to grow. But if you're making decisions one after the next, after the next, after the next, after the next, and you're still right 60% of the time, you're going to grow faster. So right. you, it's about the speed of decision-making. It's not about being right 100% of the time. What, where you want to master is getting that 60% right with a limited amount of information. That's yeah. what you need to focus on, not on trying to get 100% of the information. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting. I, I mean, obviously I've heard speed is your friend, speed is the new currency, like all of these things, right? But as you were saying that, what it made me think about is <clears throat> there are a lot of times, usually in the fall, I'll go elk hunting. My dad and I go out somewhere west and we're bow hunters and we're hunting for elk. And so in the summer, I'm shooting my bow, trying to really just dial it in, make sure that I'm confident. I'll hold it back for you know minutes and minutes just to make sure my back is strong. And just all the things that way you're in, you're in the moment, you're good. Like You, know, you don't want to destroy that one individual moment, right? And so I, I liken that to the decision moment that you're talking about and all these preparations that you can do ahead of time. But in the moment, sometimes you don't have this clear shot and, the, and this all this time to prepare and, and be able to breathe all the way in and all the way out. Like it's just not perfect like that most times. And so a lot of times in my practice is I will pull up, find my site and let it go. Like it's not perfect. It probably is not going to be like as long as I'm just there. And that's how I'll practice a lot of times is what you're saying. Can I be pretty close? Most of the time with only a split second decision, like pull it up, aim, fire, right? Mm -hmm. and, and not taking my time and not breathing and not making sure that everything's perfect in the air and, and this, that, or the other. <laughs> because in those moments, it's if you can, if you can maximize that, because it's going to happen over and over and over again, if you can maximize those moments, what you're saying is that you win. Would you like to add anything to that? Yeah. And, and also it gets a little more complex when you're managing with, you're making decisions with other people or oh, with teams. Yeah. And if you're the CEO, the founder, 
and you're making the final decision, one of the best practices I find is that it, you wield a lot of influence, whether you, you think about it or not, and you're going to sway people. So right. you never want to speak first. You always want to speak last. So you get out from all your people. They're allowed to talk their opinions and how they feel and how they would decide. And then at the end, you make your decision, but make it clear to everyone that they may not agree with your decision, but they need to support it at the end. And they can't come back afterwards. Once the decision is made, it's made. You had your chance to speak beforehand. You can't have held something back during that right. discussion. And then tell me after the meeting, walking down the hall that you had this other thought that's like, no, <laughs> not allowed. So decisions need to be, you make them final and you speak last. Yeah. That's so good. The speaking last piece is very difficult, but I agree with you. And also too, I love what you said there, because if you set the expectation of like a decision has been made, we're not going to come back on it. Then what that does is it firms up the aim, the, you know, the mission that you've already described several minutes ago. It's like, man, no, no, like, this is where we're going. Here's the decision that we made. Boom. Like we pulled the trigger, like it's done. Like we can't go back. And that's a culture. That's a thing like where we, we all came together. Rick made the decision and now, now we got to go, you know, eat our cake. And that's a, <clears throat> that's a stick to That's a persistence thing, which you've already discussed with us. How did you go about building that as far as like the culture, the expectation, finding those people that agreed with that? Like, give us some insights there. I would say that's one of the more difficult things is finding the right people. Yeah. And the other good thing about that with COVID is that everyone re remote and COVID and it made me realize you know, I want to build this world-class, high-performing workforce. And now that everyone's remote and we've gone remote for the most part, there are a few people that, that come into the office, myself included, but we can now, our talent pool has just increased dramatically and we're based in Silicon Valley. So our talent pool was very, very small. We were competing with tech companies for talent, which is not where you want to be competing for talent, especially right. as a, a beauty company. Yeah, And yeah. And so, so now with this, this greater pool for talent, it becomes a little bit easier. It is a little bit, I, I have not mastered this side of it in terms of getting the right people, but I have learned a few things. And one is setting the expectations up front is really important with everyone because that way, at least you weed out the people who don't want that kind of high performance, high demanding work because we're building a high performance team, which means that you got to work hard. If yeah. you want to work with us, if you want to be with us on this journey, it's, it's, it's not an easy job. It means hard work. A players like to work with a players. If we bring on board B players or C players, our A players are going to leave. Yeah. 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 That's right. A little, little different angle, but I've even, I've even taken that approach with gathering the Kings mastermind group is that not just letting any entrepreneur, it's not just for any entrepreneur. Because what I have found, especially with entrepreneurs, is we're A players, or at least that there is there are ones that have been successful. And what they want to do is rub shoulders with other people who can challenge them so that they can still yet get better. And there's a place and a time for giving back. That's what you and I are doing right now. We get to, I mean, there's millions and millions of entrepreneurs who are starting and or in their first couple of years, and they're going to benefit greatly from this conversation. And that's what they should be doing. They should be listening to podcasts and reading books and and taking people to lunch and stuff like that. But for high performers, it is an, it is imperative to get around other high A players like what you just said. Otherwise, their potential isn't maximized. And that's that that goes to the same for the team. If you can build a team 
within your organization of eight players, those eight players, they'll challenge each other. And, and something greater comes out of that than either one of them could have done by themselves. Right. And, and I want to say, Chaz, that you touched on the teams. I would say as you're, you're an entrepreneur and as you're growing, you're going to be hiring staff or maybe you're already hiring staff. The, building a team is kind of a critical piece to being successful. But I would say from my perspective, the most important person to have on that team is the team leader and really focusing your energy on that team leader. That team leader is your most critical hire. You can get the best team leader can turn mediocre people into great people. Oh yeah. But your team leader has to be great. Your team leader has to be that a person. Yeah. hundred percent. Love it. All right. Let's go to the speed round real quick here. My first question is about KPI. What's the most important KPI or what's the one that you would choose to track over and over if you could only pick one? This is a really good question. I love KPIs and I'm actually, there's one KPI. I want to say I'm anti KPI right now Okay. that I want to lead with because I know a lot of other digital marketers, they like live and breathe by this KPI and it's ROAS. I do yeah. not believe in I'm anti ROAS at the okay. moment. And I tell every single agency, every single partner about this and they're so so shocked because they're always trying to win your business by saying oh we have you know we can get you four ROAS we can get you eight ROAS we can get you you know so it's not ROAS just to eliminate one but I would say the the most important KPI for the business as a whole this is a really challenging question because I have it I have it for different pieces of the business I don't know if it's trees uh-huh. we plant because we plant a tree with every order so that's a good KPI that's because cool. the more trees you plant then then the more orders you have and the business is successful so it might be as uh, for the business as a whole like the number of trees we plant for example but yeah. I think ult- ultimately our top KPI that I use as a company is the net promoter score the okay. NPS Ooh, yeah very good and and I I not able to apply this across the board. I can apply it on our website. I can apply it in our retail doors. It's a little more difficult through channels like Amazon and, and your B2B. But this is the KPI I go to because this shows me how well am I delivering on my mission to my customers? Am I really right. improving their lives? Are they filling right. it? Are there things I'm doing that's not that I need to, to change? So I really love the NPS because you hear from your front lines direct coming back. Yeah. Do you guys do that through surveys, through reordering tactics? I, ha, tell us just, just a smidge there. Yeah, we, we just use an app for now. We're using Stamped at the moment through Shopify to measure our NPS score. Yeah. And that's been working pretty fairly well. And so customers, it's a very quick question. How likely are you to refer you know, your, your product or service to like 100% pure to a friend? And they rank it from zero to 10 and depending on how they rank, you end up with a score around yeah. that. And then they can write like a sentence or two feedback, which I read every single one of those. Mm. And it really helps adjust our my decision-making. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, referrals obviously are the lifeblood. And and every business can understand that. Whether they have a net, net promoter score or not, it's, are you getting referrals? <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the easy way to say it. What book would you recommend, Rick, for a business owner trying to grow? You know, there's, I'll recommend a book, but also I want to recommend because I touched on teams. There's a case study, a Harvard Business Reviews case study, Project Oxygen. I recommend reading this case study. I I read it when I was at Harvard and it was a Google spent $20 million on this case study. And this is where they found out the benefit of team managers and how important 
the team leaders are to a team. So I recommend that case study. It's called Project Oxygen, or you can probably Google it and, and find some material around it. And then books, a related book actually is John Dewar is the name and okay. his uh, Measure What Matters is the book. Okay. And it's how he created the OKR system, which he brought to Google when they were 30 employees. Wow. And they and Google used the OKR system. And objective key result is what OKR stands for. And now a lot of companies use this to help set your goals. And you set these aspirational goals. That's the difference with the OKR system and with like your regular KPIs is your OKRs are very aspirational. Yeah. So it makes you 10x yourself. And it gives yeah. your staff and your team to 10x themselves. When you're thinking about a 10x goal and say you only achieve a portion to that goal at the end of the day, that's still a lot more than if you set your bar a lot lower with a regular goal. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. There's, there's some limiting beliefs around not wanting to just disappoint yourself <clears throat> with uh, without setting those really, really big targets. I love it. What do you think about intentionally networking or masterminding with other entrepreneurs? Necessary thing. Absolutely necessary. And you should always get yourself a mentor. Be love a mentor is, is giving back. So be a yeah. mentor, get a mentor coaches. I've worked with a coach. I'm in the middle of not working with a coach right now, but usually I have a, a business or personal coach to help you along that journey. Yeah. Being part of, of networks. I'm a member of, you know, young presidents organization, YPO. So yeah. whether it's EO, YPO, or there's other organizations to join in your industry, yep. highly, highly recommend because it's the strength of your network is, I, I would say is entirely aligned with the strength of your business growth. So the stronger you get your network, the more successful you're going to become. So really focus on building your network. It's huge, huge. Okay. I got one last question here for you, Rick. You ready? Yes. If you could whisper in the younger Rick's ear, what would you say? Wow. That, that's deep. That is a really deep question. If I could whisper, tell me something that would change that could potentially change my whole course of future, what would that be? I would, I would say this. I, I know what I would say. Trust yourself. Believe in yourself. And the reason I would say this is because confidence is a very, very important skill or, yeah. or belief to yeah. have in order to achieve success, you have to have confidence in yourself. With confidence, you can achieve anything, but you need that confidence. So, and there are times, there are times in your journey where your confidence, because of the mistakes you make, like when COVID happened and all the retail stores I spent money building and, and put a ton of energy in, started, you know, going the opposite direction. It's like, it's just wipes away all that confidence. You're like, wow. I, I was really bad. I made some really bad mistakes. Right. And it's hard to get back that confidence, but you can get it back. But if you can maintain that confidence your whole time, you can achieve even greater levels yeah. of success. Yeah. So good. You have been extremely valuable here today, not only to our listeners, but to me, I just really appreciate everything that you've given. How can the listener find you, Rick? Whether they obviously... Uh, please drop website. How can they shop from you? I want to know that, and maybe some different uh, unique things that you can promote there, but, but also how can they find you as an individual? Maybe they want to reach out and pick your brain. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Chaz. 
They can go to one zero zero and then spell out percent and then P-U-R-E, 100percentpure.com. So that's our our biggest brand, our website, the brand I founded in 2004. Love it. And yep, 100percentpure.com, 100percentpure.com. And then if to connect with me, LinkedIn is really the best. You can look me up, Rick Costick, or I put my formal first name, Richard Costick, on LinkedIn and please drop me a note and connect with me. And usually I do respond. I take some time to, you know, I don't go through every day on my LinkedIn, but I'll go through every other week and, and try to get back to everyone. Yeah. Really, really appreciate that opportunity. We'll put the website, obviously your LinkedIn link as well in the show notes. But yeah, I I just think that especially with just the, the effort that you've gone through of, of not only leading an industry, I think it'd be worth the listener checking out what you've put together as well as reaching out to you. So again, uh, selfishly, thank you for the time. I thank you on behalf of the listeners as well. We wish you absolutely nothing but blessing to your business, your, your, your partners, all of your clients. We really, really appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you, Chess. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Gathering the Kings today. I hope that you were able to pull out a few nuggets to go apply into your business right away. More importantly, though, I hope that you're realizing that it takes more to be successful than just being by yourself, doing it all on your own, carrying the weight all by yourself. What I have realized, not only in my own journey from multiple businesses and multiple different industries, and now interviewing literally over two or 300 other very successful seven, eight, and nine-figure business owners, is that it's tough to do it alone. And so Gathering the Kings literally exists to bring together successful entrepreneurs. In fact, we are putting together one thousand kings specifically who are grateful but not done we're intentionally assembling kings who fight tooth and nail for their business family and communities and here's what we believe that in the pursuit of excellence in those areas that it ignites within us the responsibility to govern power and forge a lasting legacy so if that relates and and resonates with you and you know that you need people around you sharp qualified other very successful business owners, I want you to go to gatheringthekings.com. I want you to take a look at what we're doing and see if it makes sense for you to be part of our pursuit to 1,000 Kings. Talk soon.